Welcome back to another month's episode of Energy Voices. My name is Sean Collins, and I'll be the host of the next hour of programming. This month on Energy Voices, we're going to take the theme of the future we want to take a look at the very recent announcements and changes to the global climate movement, specifically the United States pulling out of the the Paris Agreement. This has been a very foundational piece of uh, global diplomacy that was signed in December of 2015. And, and, and here on Energy Voices, we've done a number of episodes leading into and out of the Paris Agreement. The thing that's very interesting about the United States pulling out of the Paris Agreement is that it's brought this accord back to the global forefront in a way that I don't think anybody really expected. And so on this month's show, we're going to examine the United States pulling out of the Paris Agreement from a few different perspectives. First, we're going to have Kaylee Taylor, who's the former executive director of Student Energy and one of my co-founders in starting Student Energy, who's working in Geneva and working on the sustainable development goals that are very intricately connected to some of the primary aims and objectives of the Paris Agreement. So Kaylee's going to share for us sort of the international community's response to the United States pulling out of the agreement. Uh, We also have Ariel, who's the marketing director for the International Student Energy Summit that's coming up uh, next week um, in Mexico who's going to share a very interesting um, approach that he's taken in how youth can make their voice heard on this issue and how we can let world leaders know um, what this is, as well as some of the silver linings uh, in what this pullout from the Paris Agreement will mean. Um, and then finally, we've got Alona Doherty, who uh, is the co- uh, the founder of Apathy is Boring um, and has a really fantastic background and experience in how youth can get engaged in these sorts of complex uh, and challenging issues and make a real difference. And so uh, without further ado, we're going to throw it over to Kaylee Taylor and really walk us through a, a wide ranging episode on the future we want uh, from an energy and a climate perspective. This is Kaylee Taylor, co-founder of Student Energy, reporting live from the United Nations Palais des Nations in Geneva, Switzerland. Since my days of running Student Energy, I've been working on the Sustainable Development Goals here in Geneva and have been reporting to Energy Voices on intergovernmental processes that affect our global energy transition. This month, as most of you will already know, there's been a huge development to the most crucial and important agreement for the world of energy, the Paris Climate Accord. I reported the inner workings of this landmark deal back in December 2015, right after the agreement had been signed by nearly every country on the planet and committed them to reducing emissions on the basis of their NDC, or Nationally Determined Contribution. The agreement also commits countries to meeting every five years to up their ambition levels in an attempt to keep global warming well below 2 degrees Celsius with a strong attempt to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. This deal was over 20 years in the making and included all the world's big emitters as well as nations from the most vulnerable climate change areas including small island states and least developed countries. It marked a truly historic moment in global diplomacy. But on June 1st, 2017, the president of the world's second largest emitter announced it would be backing away from the Paris Agreement. In his speech, President Donald Trump announced the intention to withdraw from the accord based mainly on the premise that the agreement was an attempt to take jobs from America and limit their economic potential. 
The process of withdrawing will take four years, and the U.S. will join the two other countries who did not sign the agreement, Syria and Nicaragua. What happened next, in my opinion, is a truly groundbreaking response from subnational and civil society actors. A large group of Americans rejected their federal government's decision to withdraw and committed themselves to progressing the agreement on their own. Over 80 cities reaffirmed the accord and agreed to continue fighting for action in the way they plan, design, and build their cities. States began speaking about the importance of green industries for their economies and committed to continuing action at the state level despite the president's decision. Governor Inslee of Washington stated, I am proud to stand with other governors as we make sure the inaction of D.C. is met with equal force of action from the states. Today's announcement by the president leaves the full responsibility of climate action on states and cities throughout our nation. While the president's actions are a shameful rebuke to the work needed to protect our planet for our children and grandchildren, states have been and will continue to step up. Green job growth is cited between 4 and 15 million jobs per year. The large range is due to the difficulty to measure it, but clearly shows the potential. What is more stunning is the pace of growth, with solar jobs, for example, increasing 12 times as fast as the general economy. State and city-level actors clearly see the potential and are not stopping. On June 7th, for example, the governor of Hawaii signed the state into the accord in a symbolic gesture. Other notable reactions came from high-profile individuals in the U.S. Elon Musk, CEO of Tesla, and Bob Iger, CEO of Disney, withdrew from presidential advisory committees in a sign of protest. And even more notably, Michael Bloomberg, businessman and former mayor of New York City, committed to personally providing the United States' contribution of $15 million U.S. million to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Other countries, too, have expressed their disappointment with the United States and have reaffirmed their commitment to up the ambition. Of particular importance is China, who is the world's largest emitter and who is not backing down. In a symbolic move, they signed a deal with California to work on clean energy technologies and climate change mitigation. The message from the international community is clear. Action on climate change is happening, and no one country can stop it. So what makes this all so significant? Well, many would say the U.S. withdrawing undermines the agreement because of their prominence on the global stage and because, as the second largest emitter, their inaction could render the agreement impossible to achieve or be an opening for other countries to leave. This may be true, but what appears to have happened, at least in these early days, is a renewed commitment to fight climate change and a galvanization of a variety of actors all the way down to local communities to act. I would go so far as to say that we have never seen state, city, and community-level actors so flatly reject the decision of their country, and it could be a new dawn for international diplomacy, showing that while nations may be representatives of the UN and key players, more local-level actors are the ones responsible for action. I'd like to close by reading you a quote from former President Barack Obama who committed the U.S. to the agreement. A year and a half ago, the world came together in Paris around the first ever global agreement to set the world on a low-carbon course and protect the world we leave for our children. It was steady, principled American leadership on the world stage that made this achievement possible. It was bold American ambition that encouraged dozens of other nations to set their sights higher as well. And what made that leadership and ambition possible was America's private innovation and public investment in growing industries like wind and solar, industries that created some of the fastest new streams of good-paying jobs in recent years, 
and contributed to the longest streak of job creation in our history. Simply put, the private sector already chose a low-carbon future, and for the nations that committed themselves to that future, the Paris Agreement opened the floodgate for business, scientists, and engineers to unleash high-tech, low-carbon investment and innovation on an unprecedented scale. The nations that remain in the Paris Agreement will be the nations that reap the benefits in jobs and industries created. I believe the United States of America should be at the front of the pack. But even in the absence of American leadership, even as the administration joins a small handful of nations that reject the future, I'm confident that our states, cities, and businesses will step up and do even more to lead the way and help protect for future generations the one planet we've got. So next up is Meredith Adler, Student Energy's Executive Director, interviewing Ariel Golden, uh, the Marketing Director for the International Student Energy Summit taking place next week in Merida, Mexico. For anybody interested in last-minute tickets, uh, please search for Student Energy Summit uh, and you will find the event in Mexico. Hey, interns. This is Meredith Adler, the Executive Director of Student Energy. It's been an interesting week as it's the week just before International Student Energy Summit, and it's also the week of World Environment Day. So we've been talking to youth around the globe and across Canada about what it is the future. So we've been talking to youth around the globe and across Canada about the future that they want for energy and the environment. It's been an interesting week hearing everyone's ideas. And today I'm really excited because we have someone who I've worked with very closely for the last year joining us, and that's Ariel Golden. Say hi, Ariel. Hi, hi, Nurse. How are you? It's nice to be here in the Energy Voices. I was one of the... I used to listen to Energy Voices every week uh, back in 2013 when I was just a kid. So, Ariel, can you tell us a bit about what you do with Student Energy and why you're here? Yeah, I'm the Marketing Vice Chair for the International Student Energy Summit. So, and... You know, another piece of why you're here is during this Future We Want campaign that's part of World Environment Day, you ended up coming up with a very interesting idea because last week um, was the week that uh, Donald Trump, the president of the United States, decided that the United States should pull out of the Paris Agreement. And so it was a big moment, I think, for a lot of people within the Youth Environment Committee, sorry, within the Youth Environment Community, um, And everybody was a little bit shocked, but you decided to do something about it. Could you tell us what you did? Yeah, so we were thinking on the team what we could do about it. Uh, Since we we have a global community that is following us and with whom we can interact every every day. So we thought of something, well, because I think communication has two objectives one of which could be to try to make the person that can listen to you react, understand something you want to tell them. And the other one might be just because you want to get something out of your system. And with Trump, we've seen for the last hundred and something days that he definitely doesn't listen. And he probably won't change because of what we say. But we still have something in our systems that we want to get out. So that's why we decided to to get all our community to write something to Trump. Even though he won't listen, we will definitely send it to the White House and he will have it there. He'll have all our thoughts 
in, in his mailbox. So I thought this was pretty cool in that, you know, despite not believing that things will happen, although maybe they will, you never know what will change. Um, you all decided that it was really important for our internet community, the students we have from, I think, what is it, over 150 countries following the Facebook group saying, like, listen, this is what we want for the future. And it's not as important to us if you agree with us or not. Um, so what are the kinds of comments that you were getting when you asked people to write to Trump about the Paris Agreement? Okay, so that was one of the fun parts because at first we we said that every student could write about 200 characters and we were expecting like very short uh, messages, very direct and mainly sometimes some types of insults. But what was interesting is that many students... Uh, took the chance to write something much bigger and much in much greater depth. So we had some small comments, very direct and even, well, quite funny actually. And, <laughs> and some comments much more argumented and much bigger with much more continent. So, and then from what people were saying, were you seeing, you know, many people agree with him or were you seeing people say that there were other solutions besides international agreements? Like what are some of the some of the comments or some of the solutions or ideas that stuck out in your mind? Okay, so we didn't saw anyone who was agreeing with Trump. We were not surprised by that. <laughs> and what we saw is that he should definitely take into account what the people that know about the subject are thinking. And the people that know about the subject already spoke, and they spoke in the Paris Agreement back in 2016. So the the main message was listen to what the people who knows is telling, is saying, and do as the Paris Agreement says. Don't pull out of something that took us that many years to 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 be created and took that much effort. So. I mean, clearly you're quite passionate about the Paris Agreement. Um, but why is that? Like, what is your experience with, with international negotiations? And, and why do you think that something like the Paris Agreement is important? Okay, so I didn't get the chance to, to be at COP13. Uh, at COP not COP... COP21. <laughs> COP21 for the Paris Agreement, uh, even though I followed it quite closely and particularly with the student energy participation at COP21. But I got the chance to be uh, in Marrakesh in COP22 this year. And that was the first time I, I got to, to take a very close look at how international negotiations work. And uh, that's where I understood completely that even though it can be quite a difficult process, uh, that's the the way it should be. There there must be a place where all countries should work together, should get to, to write a plan and develop the mechanism to follow that, that plan. And that is the COP, each COP every year and for the past 22 years. And so from a youth perspective, I mean, some people are saying, well, it's not a huge deal that he pulled out because you know, it wasn't that binding anyways. We, you know, hadn't set all the rules of implementation yet. That's being done over the next five years or so. 
but for you from kind of a youth perspective and from your perspective of literally talking to students all around the world every day as you try to get them to the International Student Energy Summit, why is it important for us to have international cooperation? Okay, so what I saw back in Marrakesh and now when, when Trump pulled out of the Paris Agreement is that it really was a big deal, but not in a negative sense, more in a positive sense, because uh, for on one hand, uh, this big news uh, generated that everyone was talking about the Paris Agreement. Everyone was trying to, to research what it really meant and what it really meant to pull out. And also, uh, it was some type of catalyst for change. The, the youth community decided to take the lead on, on the topics that are in matter. Is that something similar that then when you no longer have like your parents behind you telling you what to do, <laughs> <laughs> that's the moment when you decide to take the lead and really get your hands into action. And that's what I think is happening. So you think that kind of this action is, or this piece, this kind of lack of political will, if you will, is actually spurring more youth into action. I, I really do. And so in terms of, you know, your work within this global community of students, are you, are you starting to see like, new ways of collaboration? Like, you know, clearly Paris took a very long time to get to you. You know, and it's going to take quite a while to recover from the actions of Trump if we're going to get back to something like a Paris Agreement that has so many countries involved and so much of the world's GDP. But what are you seeing from the students that you're working with? Do you feel like this level of collaboration is, is so complicated or is, is the same kind of level of difficulty as it is to get, you know, if we got 100 editors in a room and 100 diplomats in a room all from each from a different country, what do you think the difference would be? Okay, so that was one of the fun parts also at Marrakesh, that youth really has a place on these kind of talks. Uh, maybe that's, that's one of the, of the important things right here, because when Student Energy started, it was all about finding a place for youth in the global in the global discussions around energy and around climate change, and I, I got the feeling that that place is quite set up already, and there is a place in every cup in every international negotiation for youth, and there is and there is youth organized to do it. Uh, when we were preparing for Marrakesh, we started to look in. We started looking for all the, the groups of, of young people that were going to COP, and we discovered there's many, many, many students from all around the world and different backgrounds that are working to the, together to to take uh, to take part in these conversations and to take action. And it's all only a matter of finding them and start working with them because they are very open to it. So, I mean, clearly it's a population that's more open to collaboration. That's something that we see all the time seems to be that when you know when you're in your teens and in your 20s nobody has to tell you to collaborate you just do but somehow as you move further up the ladder often it seems that your mind becomes more and more close to new ideas which is kind of ironic but it's something that I firmly believe 
youth have to offer to to the world is is their ability to collaborate and to to get things done quickly to make decisions for what's what's best and then you know move forward rapidly what kind of so for you on a personal level like what types of which types of solutions seem promising for our energy future and what what are the things that you want youth to unite around as we work to deliver on you know the promise of the Paris Agreement, whether or not the agreement itself is still in force? Okay, so uh, I think of the, the, the change we need has two parts. On one end, it might be the technological bid, where we have to develop all the technology that's needed to generate the transition that our world requires. And in that part, we can collaborate a lot. I've seen that as an engineer. And that's mainly because, I don't know why, but our generation seems to be quite original thinkers. And we are all the time developing new ideas and tackling problems from different ways. And I think that's something we, we can take advantage on for developing new technologies and the companies that, that go along those technologies, the companies that can implement those technologies on a social level. And the other part, it's obviously the, the social part, where we, we make the, the social... Um, the social changes mm -hmm. to not only to implement the technologies, but to change our ways to, to consume, to transform, to use energy, uh, to simply make it more friendly, to consume less or consume better. Yeah, and so, and so what you really see is the forefront is that Young people are really adapt to creation of new technologies, but then also socially have the capacity to kind of work with older generations and, you know, implement those technologies and then also work with, with their peers to make sure that, like, socially there is support for those things to be implemented. And I think that that's crucial. Like, you can't, you know, when <laughs> I may be dating myself, but I remember when the camera phone came out when I was in high school um, and everyone's like, oh no, nobody will ever use a camera on their phone. That's just so silly. Like, why would you even bother putting a camera on a phone? And now it's like, why would you even bother ever buying a camera? Cause you have one on your phone. That's so good. And so all of these things shift, but it's never been like young people are like, oh no, it's so silly to put a camera on your phone. And I don't think that it'll be young people who are like, oh no, it's so silly to have a distributed grid or to aim for more energy efficiency. Yeah, and we have the, the other part. We can take uh, new technologies quite easily. We can learn how to use them. And we also are quite used to, to teach people how to use it. I taught my mother how to use all the technology we have in the house and my grandmother and my father also quite a bit. <laughs> and I can do that for also all other older people that is taking some decisions today. And I think because you and people of your age group and, and me to some extent, I'm only a few years older, um, grew up with technology. Like, do you remember the first time you got a computer? Uh, yes, I was playing Age of Empires 1. <laughs> <laughs> How old were you? <laughs> I'm not sure. I, I probably was like six years old. Okay, so you were six. So then anybody younger than you, so most of our summit delegates, for instance. 
we're younger than that even. So our generation is 100% grown up with technology and are very comfortable with the fluidity of it. Whereas that's a big, and that I think is a big offering to other generations that are established within the energy industry in terms of what we can do to to accelerate the transition and help partner on those different pieces. And like you said, teach everyone to adapt to technology just like you did with your parents, like I did with my parents, like I did with my first bosses. <laughs> it all it all comes around and goes around. So one other person that we had on the show this week um, is this really interesting woman named Alona Doherty. And she she does research on on the value that youth bring to different environments. So how this type of intergenerational collaboration can be leveraged by governments or companies. Um, but one thing that she focuses on a lot is, is showing how, well, she doesn't focus on it. One thing her research has shown is that, you know, political activity and being involved politically is a really important part of how youth can have an impact, not just as protesters, but also as people who help break policies and help um, give advice to different governments and things of that nature. What do you think, um, you know, in terms of, obviously you're very excited by technology because you're an engineer, um, but what do you think of political systems? And, and you know, do you think that, do you agree that youth need to be engaging in those types of spheres? Or are you more interested in youth maybe working around that with the private sector? I think we should do both. But uh, the... The part that I want to talk more about is to really get engaged in the in the governmental part, because one of the things I've seen in this whole summit process that we got the chance to to sit on a table in front of important people within the Mexican government and within Mexican companies is that they always have uh, younger people within their staff that was really creating. The, the exciting parts of all what's, what was being done at that office. And that person will soon become what his boss was now, <laughs> was <laughs> when I was sitting in front of his table. And then it will come to, to my generation to become that person creating new ideas and creating more value and really making changes in the offices of Mexico and the world. Yeah, I think that's interesting to point out is that just because figureheads are older doesn't mean that the worker bees necessarily are and that there is still a point influencing those pieces. Awesome. Well, so in terms of, you know, everything that's going on in the world right now, do you have any other thoughts that you wanted to share or any other pieces you want to share about, you know, your engagement on on the International Summit? Well... This week, we are reviewing every single part of the summit, and we are preparing every single detail. And we're also reviewing all the work we've been doing for something close to two years, one year and a half, a bit more. And it's, it's, it's fair to say that's quite awesome what we've built. And I'm super, super excited to start receiving every single one of the delegates we've been, we spent so much time communicating and getting to know a bit better, but I still don't know them. And I'm going to meet them quite close, quite uh, soon. And I'm super, super, super excited. It's going to be awesome. And what's your biggest hope for all of the delegates that are coming in just a few days? 
Mm. The biggest hope I have for the delegates coming to the summit is that uh, a wide network of students creating change in every region of the world is created. And it's, it gets really strong within the summit and it gets even stronger after the summit. That, that network starts being heard of all over the world and the, the friendships and the collaborations built within the summit really create an impact in every part. I think that is a beautiful way to end this. Well, thank you so much for talking with us, Ariel, and thank you so much for your work trying to activate and successfully activating youth around the world to start taking action on climate and energy. I know we appreciate it at Student Energy, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners appreciate it as well. Thank you. Saludos a todos y nos vemos pronto. I want to take a quick break away to touch base on something that Ariel said in his interview where he talked about the idea of no longer sort of having being held back by your parents or an authority figure. And and I thought that was a very profound statement um, that you're actually starting to see some very immediate and tangible results of. And so there's two short news clips that I'm going to play. Uh, One is from Hawaii signing into law. Uh, that they are going to meet the Paris Agreement targets. And another one is from a recent visit that the governor of California took to China in order to sign a subnational agreement between California and China on green energy investment and green technologies. And I think Ariel really hit the nail on the head in sort of articulating that um, while it may at first seem uh, that this is a, a failure of the authority figures in front of us, it could actually be a really uplifting moment where we're, we've sort of removed those barriers from us uh, and can now sort of uh, create our own independence and our own action around these sorts of important issues. Hawaii is the first state in the U.S. that will legally enforce parts of the Paris Agreement. Governor David Ige signed two bills Tuesday that reflect climate goals in the Paris Accord. One bill aims to cut greenhouse gas emissions statewide. The other bill creates a task force that will work to improve the soil and capture and store carbon dioxide. President Donald Trump said the U.S. would abandon the agreement last week after months of suspense. Many world leaders and U.S. politicians urged him to stay. After the announcement, a handful of states, including Hawaii, Washington, and New York, pledged to uphold the treaty's goals. California Governor Jerry Brown took it even further. Brown signed agreements with officials in China, pledging to work together on developing clean energy and cutting greenhouse gas emissions. Hawaii is particularly vulnerable to climate change. Representative Chris Lee says the state has already lost a significant amount of coastline and seen an increase in hurricanes. The state of California is ramping up efforts to reduce its carbon footprint in the wake of U.S. President Donald Trump's decision to abandon the Paris Climate Accord. California Governor Jerry Brown signed a clean energy agreement with Chinese government officials in Beijing on June 6. Brown then discussed clean energy with Chinese President Xi Jinping for about 45 minutes. Speaking about his meeting with Xi, Brown told reporters, quote, I believe that he definitely gave the green light for more collaboration between China and California, and I would say other states through this subnational agreement. The new agreements between China and California call for further investments in each other's renewable energy sectors. After Trump abandoned the Paris Climate Accord last week, Brown told the Los Angeles Times, quote, we are doubling down on our commitment. We are reaching out to other states in America and throughout the world. For United News International, I'm Mila Uni. 
And our final interview of the day is Meredith Adler with Alona Doherty uh, from Apathy is Boring. Hi everyone, welcome back to Energy Voices. This is Meredith Adler, the Executive Director of Student Energy. I'm very excited uh, about our next guest that we have here because as much as we talk about youth engagement and how important it is for youth to be involved um, in the energy system and with governments and with different companies and organizations, our next guest actually does a lot of the research behind why this is so beneficial. And I think in this age of you know uncertainty around the Paris Agreement and the need for climate action, it's really important to see how youth can engage and make an impact regardless of what the circumstances are. So here today with us is Alona Doherty, Managing Director of the Youth and Innovation Research Project at the University of Waterloo. Welcome, Alona. Hi, it's great to be with you. So today, can we start off by saying, having you just tell us a little bit about who you are and what it is that you do and kind of what you're working on? So my background um, is, is one of having been a youth leader in the environmental movement from the time I was in my early teens uh, growing up in, in Whitehorse, Yukon. Uh, and I had a really awesome opportunity when I was a teenager to be involved in both grassroots community-led uh, environmental work, but also influencing both federal and international public policy around uh, and around environmental issues. So I really got a crash course <laughs> in youth engagement and and what it's like to be a young person involved in in public policy. Um, from then, from there, I went on in my early twenties to found an organization called Apathy Is Boring, which educates young Canadians about democracy and encourages them to vote. And I really, you know, I really had had this great opportunity when I was young to be mentored and supported. And I I had a lot of incredible opportunities uh, to be meaningfully engaged in my community, but recognized that in, especially in rural Canadian and Northern communities, but certainly this is, this is true for young people across Canada. There was a lot of young people who were unengaged and didn't feel like they had the opportunity to make their voices heard. So Apathy is Boring is all about engaging unengaged youth and um, and really encouraging them or supporting them in, in finding ways uh, to have their voices heard in the democratic system. So fast forward <laughs> to being a little bit older, um, my colleague, Dr. Amelia Clark and I, who, who uh, co-created the Youth and Innovation Research Project at the University of Waterloo, had both founded youth-led organizations. She had founded Sierra Youth Coalition in her 20s and had both been young leaders. And we felt when we were young leaders that there weren't a lot, there wasn't a lot of quantitative data. Like we didn't know a lot about how to meaningfully support young leaders. Um, And we also, there weren't a lot of former young leaders who were around and who were willing and and excited to kind of pass on lessons to the next generation. So we thought, okay, let's figure out, let's figure out what the research says, you know, and what 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 data we can find around um, how young leaders are having an impact in the Canadian context and how we can better support them. So our goal and our work is all around flipping the narrative around youth engagement from being something where young people learn a lot to being a conversation about the kind of unique impact that young people can have. So what is particular around a young leader? Like what, what is it about that time of life that, that is unique 
and what are what is the kind of impact that young people can have that's unique so our we do research work but we also do a lot of public facing work mainly with adults in the later stages of their careers <laughs> to support them in in really thinking about young people differently and uh, and and kind of understanding why supporting young youth leadership and supporting youth engagement is not just a nice thing to do so that young people develop into healthy future adults. It's really important for our society and the economy um, because young people can have a, a unique and meaningful impact while they're young. So, I mean, I think that all of that is really fascinating in terms of, you know, where we're at now, but what, I guess, within, you and I both firmly believe in the impact that young people can have. Um, it's why you founded out these boring. It's why I work with student energy. Um, but, you know, and I'd say that I really resonate with the idea that, you know, it's hard to have the data points behind why people should really care about youth and young people's opinions and giving youth leadership opportunities within these different fields. So what, what have been some of those surprising things that you've found as you've been back embarked on this project of putting together the research behind, um, you know, why governments and organizations and companies need to care about youth? Well, one of the things that we we found through through some of the research we did. So we did a research study uh, that we published in an academic journal in 2015, both Amelia and I with our colleague Elaine, Elaine Ho. And, uh, and we looked at 35 years of youth-led impact in Canada. So we did a media scan. Where have young people had impact? Um, and, and what kinds of impacts have they had? And we really, again, we wanted to look at the data and really figure out what we know about, about youth, youth engagement and young change makers in Canada. And what we found is that young people are consistently underestimated. <laughs> that, that was one of the big findings is that we have this narrative, especially right now in, in North American culture, uh, we talk about millennials being lazy and entitled and, you know, all these kind of negative words to define young people. But the reality is that young people dream big ha and are putting bold ideas into, into action. So that was, I mean, that was really cool <laughs> uh, finding for us. And also, you know, after having spent, um, 10 years running Apathy is Boring and thinking about unengaged young people and focusing on how to mobilize young people who are not engaged, it was really amazing to be reminded just how um, young people, there's so many young people who are all already engaged. So so number one, I think it's there's this incredible energy that we don't necessarily, aren't tapping into because we have these negative attitudes uh, around young people. So that was that was kind of that's one of the big barriers that we identified that we really feel we need to work on. Interesting. And so it, when you say that, you know, they're going and doing things that are bigger and better, how are you seeing governments, for instance, engaging with young people on on kind of leveraging those skills um, to overperform? So I I think it's really interesting because when I was when I was young, um, so when I was like in the mid '90s, because I'm old now, uh, <laughs> there was actually a lot more structural ways that the federal government in Canada was meaningfully engaged engaging youth. Now we're seeing some of those things come back, 
um, you know, certainly with the Prime Minister's Youth Council, and and there's definitely a desire to meaningfully engage young people. But uh, you know, 20 years ago, we through the Canadian Environmental Network, uh, a, a group of young people were actively sourcing opinions from young Canadians across the country and had had support from the federal government to do this, to input into two uh, major UN agreements. So there was just more infrastructure. There was a youth roundtable on the environment that directly advised the Minister of the Environment. There were these kind of structural mechanisms to meaningfully engage youth that I think are a little bit less developed um, at this point. So we've kind of gone backwards. Um, and, and I think it's really critical that when we're talking about youth engagement, again, we don't talk about it as a nice thing to do, and we don't do it kind of off the side of our plates, that there are actually institutional mechanisms where young people are at the decision-making table, where there's a commitment to intergenerational decision-making and partnerships. So one example of that is is not having young people on UN delegations um, as kind of NG NGO representatives or unofficial youth delegates, but actually having young people on the official delegations sitting beside the minister, um, seeing more of those those structural things uh, happen and be consistent uh, is is something I think we need to see a lot more of. Yeah, and along that note, I mean, I've had this conversation with UNFCCC, for instance, and various governments. And, you know, the question that's always asked is, well, what's in it for me? You know, how much time is this going to take? And what would I actually get out of engaging this person, um, this young yep. person? How do you answer those questions? So we're in a period of history that where young people's skills and abilities are exactly what we need <laughs> to address the complex challenges we're facing. So we're in a period of time where change is rapid, increasingly rapid, but also not linear. So it used to be more like, you know, kind of one big change would happen after another. Now we're dealing with uh, what some people are calling the fourth industrial revolution, where there is, it's non-linear complex change, a bunch of different kinds of change are happening at the same time, whether that's changes in the way we're going to need to adapt because of climate change, whether that's technological changes, they're all happening at the same time. And it's making the problems that we're facing in our communities increasingly complex. Now, who is best um, set up to deal with these changes? Well, our research shows, but also I, I personally have seen this. It's often young people who have spent the most, most of their lives um, in this in this context of rapid change, uh, our research and we've just published published research making the case that 15 to 25 year olds uh, brains are wired for innovation. When we're 15 to 25, uh, neuroscience and developmental psychology tell us that our brains are in this heightened stage of neuroplasticity. That means they're more open to learning, more open to new experience, more open to new ideas. And our, our, we have made the academic case 
that this means that that from 15 to 25, where young people are in a heightened stage uh, ability to innovate and, and a heightened stage where they're able to come up with bold new ideas. So we really see young people as an innovation engine within governments. So young employees as an innovation engine in, within governments, within cor the corporate sector, within NGOs, but young people in society as well as this kind of innovation engine they know they lived the change <laughs> yeah. and they're at the forefront of the change that we're seeing, but also their brains are wired to figure out solutions to these big problems. So what's in it for us? This is an untapped resource. We have biases and negative attitudes around young people that have stopped us from tapping in to this incredible capacity that young people uniquely possess. Um, and on top of that, we're in, in North America especially, we're in a period where society is aging. So we have more seniors now in Canada than we do young people under the age of 14. So not only do young people represent this incredible innovation engine, they're also a dwindling resource. <laughs> and, you know, and so it, in a period of, of an aging society, which we know leads to societies being less innovative, we it's it's an extra need that we have if we want our economies to be successful but also address social problems that we really tap into this incredible capacity of young people so there's a lot in it <laughs> for yeah. for adults this is not just a nice thing to do i would argue it's actually essential to the future health uh, of society and the economy and so in i think I mean, I think that that's so crucial and you made so many good points about how, you know, we need youth innovators and actually, you know, we may be lacking um, youth going forward. But so, but part of what the reason that we invited you on the episode today is that um, last week, uh, Donald Trump, the president of the United States, um, pulled out of the Paris Agreement. And so, and we actually next week have our International Student Energy Summit coming up. So we have youth from literally all over the world coming together um, to work on solutions for energy and energy and climate change and sustainability. So it's a really big, exciting event. We often refer to it as the Climate Hope Summit um, because there's just so many new ideas and so much enthusiasm for solutions rather than being bogged down in the typical day-to-day -day of like, what a terrible situation we're in. But, you know, in light of last week's events, a lot of the students have come together to start writing about how they feel about the future of climate and energy and how they feel about energy transitions. And the main thesis I'm seeing from all of these submissions is, um, you know, the train has left the station. Like, we firmly believe that the world is moving to a clean energy future and we don't really care what anybody else says, we're going to make it happen. But, you know, on that note, how do you suggest that people start working to make it happen? Because I would say that in my work as a, as a youth leader, I suppose, and then in, um, you know, other youth leaders work that I know, you're always, you know, you can believe in your vision. We now have the data, thanks to you, to back it up. But how do you start talking to power to actually make that change happen? Um, because at the end of the day, we still don't have a, you know, 25-year-old as prime minister yet. <laughs> um, or so, maybe ever. <laughs> um, so what I would say, so our research, the research study that I mentioned before, which looked at 35 years of youth-led impact in Canada, um, showed one thing pretty clearly. 
and that is that young people are the most impactful in making the change they want to see when they use institutional power to their advantage and when they make strong intergenerational partnerships. So young people have the, these bold ideas. Young people are an innovation engine, but we can't work in silos. And we need, you know, young people need, uh, I'm not young anymore, but <laughs> young leaders need that wisdom, that contextual knowledge, like how have things been done before? How might this fit into the broader picture? How, you know, knowledge of how bureaucracies work, if they're going to be effective in their work. So, so our research showed that young people are effective, are the most effective when they create strong movement, intergenerational movements. So I would say, you know, it's all about finding adult allies, finding intergenerational allies uh, that you can work closely with and who are who are able to scale, help you scale your work, I guess, um, beyond some of the barriers that young people often face. So we see youth-led organizations often having challenges around resourcing, financial resources, uh, access to direct power. So who are those folks who might be a little bit older, who can, who have access to direct power, who have access to money, who might be able to support you in overcoming some of those barriers. Secondly, political influence. So, so after having founded Apathy is Boring <laughs> and, and doing this, this mobile, on the ground mobilizing work for, for so many years, now stepping into academia, it was really cool to, to have our research back up what I kind of intuitively believed, which is political power is really, really important and relevant. So, and that's what we found. We found young people who are members of political parties, who are, are involved in political um, youth wings, have more impact than when young people are only engaged outside the system. Now there's a place for protest, there's, there's a place for all of these different tactics and mechanisms, but one of the mechanisms that needs to be used is is um, engaging with political power. So what I would say is demand to be at the table, demand that there are consistent institutional structures that allow young people to be at the table and stay at the table. This is really, really hard work. It's incredibly frustrating and often it feels like we're you know, pushing a boulder up a hill and you're not really sure what the outcomes are gonna be, um, but it does work, um, and and the reality is that that political institutions do still hold power in the in the modern context, uh, and that's certainly one of the mechanisms that uh, that needs to be used if if young people hope to be effective in their work. Hmm, I think that's really interesting. So, in terms of the system, you know, there are, as you mentioned, there are many ways to to kind of play the game, if you will. There's protesting, there's other pieces. But what you're recommending is that youth do really need to find a way to be speaking to their governments and be speaking to those who hold political power because of the scale of impact that political power can have. Yeah, so we often, and again, our research showed that, that young people often get stuck in awareness raising. Um, and that's really important, and that's part of movement building, but, but actually influencing policy, actually changing structures, changing policy is, is another part of how we see large-scale change that we also, um, that, that young people tend not to be quite as involved in, but is, is equally, if not more important 
if we want to see meaningful long-term change. So, so yeah, you know, protesting is part of it. Um, awareness raising campaigns uh, are part of it as well. But we, but it's really about kind of broadening the the tactics and tool tools in your toolbox uh, to make sure that that you're really seeing the kind of impact that, that you want to have. Interesting. And in terms of kind of impact with government and policy, one thing that I I know that our our population runs up against is that energy policy is incredibly complex. And so people, um, you know, have a hard time taking you seriously, for instance, when they are, um, you know, talking about a FIT program or some type of, you know, new energy policy that would be really impactful. And there's a lot of time that needs to go into it. Like there's a, a significant lead time to being able to going from I care about solar energy to being able to talk to your minister or your MLA or your MP about what you would advocate for around the development of solar energy, for instance. So how do you suggest people go about that process? So I think being curious is really key um, and and realizing what you don't know and, and it, you know, asking questions um, and being willing to learn are, are all important things. But a couple of things that I would say, one is that being young is all about learning, right? In our society, we have this kind of false dichotomy and problematic dichotomy, which talks about you learn when you're young and you kind of meaningfully engage when you're older. So young people are in a period of their lives where they're encouraged to learn. And I think we often underestimate what young people know. Um, as a result of that, as a result of that kind of time that, that we have in North American society to learn. So I would say you probably know more than you think you know. <laughs> and secondly, there's a researcher in the U.S. named Benjamin Jones who talks about this thing called the knowledge burden. And what a knowledge burden is, uh, is actually knowing so much about a particular area that you're unable to think outside the box or innovate. So there's also something really valuable to knowing a little bit less, being able to kind of think in a new uh, and different way. So again, there's a role for young people. Yes, there might not be the years of experience, um, but I think sometimes experience, especially in the context of rapid change, is overestimated. And the benefit of a new pair of eyes looking at the situation from a different angle is underestimated. So do we need to mentor, train, support young leaders so that they have the resources to meaningfully engage? Absolutely. But um, we also shouldn't underestimate the additional value that they bring. I think that's fantastic and an excellent point. Um, so within kind of all of your research and, and these different pieces, I think, you know, these are such meaningful moments of, you know, you do really need to engage, but then also you're pointing out all of these ways in which youth have value. They're, you know, innovators who have the mindset available for these rapidly changing circumstances. And they also don't have this knowledge burden, which is something that we see very, very often, I think, within the world of energy is that somebody has been doing their job at said company for 30 years. And that's how it's always been done. And that's how it always must be done. And that's no way to kind of get to a disruptive system we need for an energy transition in, in my mind. And so, um, and then these pairings around intergenerational collaboration in that you don't need to know everything in order to be able to act. You just need to find the right partners who can help you 
put the puzzle pieces together, which I think mm-hmm. is a fantastic message. Is there anything else that you think is you know, relevant about your research or about the work that you're doing that would help youth who are looking to take action on, on the energy future? Um, I think, you know, I think, I think the points that you just summarized are, are really the key points. Um, I would just, again, reiterate that this work isn't easy. Intergenerational partnerships are not easy. It's about power. And it's about, it's about folks who, the reality is in our society, folks kind of in, in their mid to late careers tend to have the most power. Um, and, and so encouraging them to give up power (laughs) and have more diverse, uh, voices, whether those be intergenerational or any other kinds of diverse voices around the table is not easy. Um, but, but it's fundamentally critical, uh, if we're going to address these challenges. And one of the ways I think young people can, can talk about, the importance of their role and that really resonates with those folks who are in kind of later career is to talk about legacy building um, and reframe the role of youth as one where young people can be leaders today. And if they are leaders today, that helps build the legacy of all those who have come before them. So it's really, you know, again, it's a, it's an intergenerational conversation. It's not, um, it's not about kind of handing young people the keys and saying, okay, it's all up to you because I think, I think that's actually, um, you know, young people will solve all of our problems. It's actually a total cop out as well. <laughs> you know, it, it's gotta be, it's gotta be about generations coming together. So, so I would encourage, you know, the young people that, that, uh, that will hear this and that are working with you to think about how their work is contributing to the legacy of those who have come before them and how you can have a meaningful contribution about what kind of legacy they're hoping to leave behind and how engaging young leaders now can be a part of that. I think that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I, I really appreciate it. And it's so great to hear from people like you who have... Uh, been through all the phases, been a youth leader, and now working to support youth leaders um, through your research and through your other pieces of work. Um, Thank you so much for joining us, and um, we hope to hear more from you soon. One last question, actually, is where can people find your research? So uh, you can find it on our website. If you just Google Youth and Innovation Research Project in University of Waterloo, that's probably the best way to find it. Um, and, uh, or you can find me on Twitter and Facebook. So Ilona Doherty, I-L-O-N-A-D-O-U-G-H-E-R-T-Y, a little bit hard to, <laughs> difficult name, but you can find me. We'll publish uh, that on the blog. It's okay. <laughs> right. And, um, yeah, I would just, I mean, we're, we're, you know, both Avila and I are really passionate about, um, supporting young leaders and also making sure that our work is a, is about being supportive, not about taking the space of youth voice. So, um, but we've got the research to back up what you guys are doing and why it's so important. So, so certainly I would say never hesitate. Anybody who wants to reach out to us and, um, and who we can support uh, and, and provide you with that research and some of that argument, we're always more than happy to do that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I hope that lots of people will be reaching out and, um, and we, yeah, we, I'm sure we'll talk soon again about all these exciting developments. Great. Thanks so much. Thanks. 
That brings to a close another month's episode of Energy Voices. My name is Sean Collins, and this episode has been produced by Sean Collins, Meredith Adler, and Kaylee Taylor.